Hey, and if you would take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John chapter 18, and if you need a Bible, we have several over here on our resource table. Feel free to hop up and grab one of those. Uh, We also have a number of scripture journals over there as well, so if you're a journaler, uh, please hop up and do that and uh, follow along with us this morning. Let me pray for us this morning as we get going. Father God, thank you for this time together as the body of Jesus. Thank you for time to gather and worship you in this place. Uh, Thank you for your goodness and grace that we see in and through Jesus. And I pray, Lord, today that as we encounter your Holy Scripture, that you would communicate it into our hearts and into our minds. Um, And, Father, that it wouldn't return void, that it truly would take root within us and shape and form who we are and how we live. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It seems uh, that one of the common sentiments that I encounter uh, when reflecting with other people on, like, the state of current events or the state of our world or something to the effect of that... Um, that the sentiment that often comes up is something like, man, things sure are crazy right now. Or like, man, our world is just nuts right now. And, and it is true that our world, uh, particularly here in the West, uh, is very different than it was even 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, the hyper pace of technological innovation has contributed much to this. In the developed world, life is truly easier than it has probably ever been, um, especially in terms of like the amount of physical labor uh, or exertion that is required of the average person on a daily basis. I read an article recently noting uh, the irony of the rise in popularity of clothing brands that have traditionally been workwear brands, such as Carhartt, uh, like in this age where most people are not actually going out and like manually laboring every day. It's like I'm, I'm putting on my Carhartt and I'm sitting down at my kitchen table and working remote and doing my meetings over Zoom, yet I look like I'm ready to do like some welding, you know, or go out and chop some wood. It's just this really kind of interesting situation that we find ourselves in. But is life actually better because of these things? The reach of technology is also extensive. It's not just about the internet and like computer-related tech. Since 1950, there have been countless culture-altering, seemingly once-in-a-generation type innovations. But they aren't only coming once in a generation, are they? They're like repeatedly coming fast and furious. And I mean, there are tons. I mean, many that we maybe even forget or we've grown so accustomed to them, we don't realize how significant they were when they came about. Uh, The birth control pill, uh, possibly the most significant medical innovation of the last hundred years in terms of its cultural impact. The cell phone, uh, so ubiquitous that most of us can't uh, even imagine life without it. Uh, DNA testing and sequencing. Uh, The barcode. When's the last time you bought something that didn't have a barcode on it? Uh, GPS. 
uh, magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, like just to name a few. Major societal changes that have come about in an incredibly short span of time. In fact, there's an entire field of study that is developing that is really looking at how is it that the human race has existed for as long as it has, and yet for some reason, 100, 150, 200 years ago, it's like a switch was flipped, and now we literally are driving around in electric vehicles. Like something that would have been just like inconceivable, outside the realm of even human imagination for most of human history. Like all of these things have come about in a very short span of time. Alongside these innovations, though, there have been major changes in human communication and human thinking. Perhaps most significant among shifts in thinking has been the rise of what's called postmodernism. You've probably heard of postmodernism, but maybe feel like you don't really know what it is. But to try to, try to put it simply, postmodernism is a way of thinking in which there really is no such thing as objective reality, but rather reality is a subjective construct that is subject uh, to one's background, experience, ethnicity, interpretation. Uh, so, so one of the things that primarily uh, impacts is my view of truth. It impacts my view of truth. Modernism, which came before post-modernism, Post meaning after comes later. Modern, modernism said that truth was primarily objective, meaning it was not influenced by personal feelings or opinions or one's background, but it was reflective of reality. Postmodernism, though, says that truth is subjective, meaning it is based on personal feelings, personal opinions, because reality in this new way of thinking is something you create. So in a postmodernist world, you don't really have truth, singular, you have truths, plural. Because there is a discomfort with the idea that there could be universal truth that could apply to everyone everywhere because everyone's different. So the result of all of that is that we live in a world that is extremely confused about truth. And yet a world that is at the same time like obsessed with truth. We hear often of those who are supposedly speaking their truth or speaking truth to power or truth-telling or speaking hard truths or talking about inconvenient truths, yet at the same time, we're living in what some have called the post-truth age, and that's not only because there have been significant politicians who have observedly lied about things, which is in no way like a new phenomenon uh, in, in like human nature and in the world of politics, but also because of the rise of the internet. Like, you can go online and not only find support for whatever truth claims you want to make, you can also find an entire community of people who are ready and willing to agree with you. So our culture is caught in between these two worlds. Some people who talk about truth may mean objective truth, and then some people who talk about truth may mean subjective truth, and most often everyone is like left confused, as many of you may be right now. 
Why is this important? Well, it's important because Christianity is based on a claim of truth. It's not a claim of subjective truth, not just something that is true for me, but maybe isn't true for other people, but a claim of objective truth, a, cl- a claim of like universal truth. But, but even more than that, it, it like transcends philosophical categories because this truth, this claim of Christianity, it does not simply shape how we view reality. The claim says that the truth itself is reality. Let me say that again. The claim of Christianity is not simply a truth that like shapes how I look at the world or how I view reality. The claim says that the truth itself is reality. So, let's turn to our text this morning. John chapter 18, I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 28, if you would read along in your copy. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus has been arrested at this point. After his arrest, he was taken before Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the Jewish high priest at this point in time. He then gets taken to Caiaphas himself. John does not really give us an account of Jesus before Caiaphas at this time. In, In the meantime, Peter, as we talked about last week, fulfilled prophecy by denying Christ three times. Taylor talked about that in his message last week. And then today, Jesus is dragged before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor in that 
region. At this time, Israel, including the city of Jerusalem, was ruled by the Romans. But the Romans, the Romans like allowed the Jewish people a great deal of autonomy to live their lives according to their culture. The Romans didn't come in and like wipe the cultural slate clean. They allowed all of these different groups to continue to basically operate in the ways that they always had. The Jews still worshipped how they wanted. They still had their own laws. They still had their own leadership structures. The Romans didn't mess with any of that. All the Romans really did was collect tax. So the Romans are getting rich off of them while continuing to allow them to live their lives. The one thing that the Jews could not do, though, was put someone to death. They needed the Romans for that. They needed Pilate for that. But why kill Jesus? Like, like why has it gotten to this point? What, what exactly has Jesus done? It, well, it's true that Jesus was seen by some as a blasphemer. We've seen some glimpses of that um, throughout John's gospel as we've been studying it. Jesus had done things like break the Sabbath, at least according to the customs of his day. He claimed that God was his father, which was like this very scandalous thing to some people. But, but those issues of blasphemy were primarily scandalous to a group of people known as the Pharisees, who, who were these like ultra-conservative law keepers in their day. Uh, but on the night that Jesus was arrested, he wasn't dragged before Pharisees. He was dragged before Sadducees, which is a completely different group of Jewish leaders. In Jerusalem at this time, the priestly class, uh, those who ruled in the temple, were primarily Sadducees, which were uh, like an elite class of Jewish rulers who not only had great power, uh, but also had great wealth. And they primarily had their power and wealth at the pleasure of the Romans. They were, in a sense, indebted to the Romans in many ways for allowing them to maintain and grow their position of power. And John reminded us just a few verses earlier of exactly why the Sadducees thought Jesus should die. You go back to verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, chapter 18. Uh, after Jesus is arrested, it says, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The high priest, who is a Sadducee, said it would be expedient if one man could die for the people. So while doing things like cleansing the temple had undoubtedly not made Jesus popular with the Sadducees who ruled in the temple, the real issue here seems to be the way that Jesus' teaching and his miracles and his truth claims had stirred up an entire grassroots movement of followers that had peaked just a few days earlier in what's called the triumphal entry. When Jesus and many of his followers entered Jerusalem in this mass crowd, and people were literally laying their coats and palm branches on the ground in front of him, and were saying things like, Hosanna, like they were worshiping him publicly, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and, and one of the titles that the crowd gave to him at the triumphal entry was King of the Jews. 
This led the Pharisees to observe back in John 12, where the triumphal entry is. Pharisees said, look, the world has gone after him. That's what it seemed like to them. There were so many people who had bought into Christ that it seemed like the whole world had gone after him. So for all the Pharisees and Sadducees know, as they're looking at this from the outside, this is a political revolution, they think. This guy, Jesus, who thinks he's the son of God, is gathering this mass crowd of people, and more than likely at some point, all of these folks are going to try to take on the Romans. And the result of that is going to be that the Romans are going to sweep in and they're going to wipe all of us out. This is the way that the Sadducees are thinking about all of this. The Romans are not going to like what's going on here. We're all going to not only lose our position and our wealth and our power, we're all very likely going to lose our lives. So Caiaphas reasons, how about instead of us all being killed, what if we just nip this in the bud by stopping the source of all of this? What if we kill the person who has seemingly instigated all of this? Jesus. And in order for that to happen, in order for them to do that, who do they need? They need Pilate. They need him to sign off on all of this. So when Jesus comes before Pilate, what is Pilate's question to him? Are you the king of the Jews? That's what people had been saying about him. Pilate says, is that true? He doesn't know. Like, I think he's asking a legit question here, right? He, he doesn't have, like, deep insight into the world of the Hebrew people. Are, are you, like, rightfully some kind of king among this people group? Verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? <laughs> Again, I, I don't know. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of the world or not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. There's so much here. I mean, we could focus in this entire time on Jesus just saying, my kingdom is not of this world. But I want to zero in on verses 37 and 38. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? The very thing that many people in our world are asking right now. What is it? What is truth? John's gospel, which was seemingly written to non-believers, it was seemingly written as an evangelistic treatise, on the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus Christ. Um, this gospel talks about truth more than any other gospel account. Here's just a sampling. 
John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 3.21, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John 4.23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. John 8, 32, Jesus says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 14, 6, the mic drop, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, 26, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, but when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. But what does John mean when he says truth? What does Jesus mean when he says truth? That's actually something that scholars have debated for a long time. What do they mean by truth, right? Because John is a Jew. He's, he's coming from a Hebrew background, right? But he's living in a Hellenistic world, meaning like a Greek-influenced world. He's writing this gospel in Greek. Um, and Hebrew and Greek conceptions of truth were not the same thing at the time. For Hebrews, truth was primarily about covenantal fidelity, Truth was primarily about covenantal fidelity. Um, think about this in terms of marriage. If one spouse is faithful to the other, then you could say that they have been true. They have been faithful, right? There has been fidelity in the marriage. But if we're talking about this from a Greek standpoint, the Greeks who were rooted in the teaching of guys like Plato saw truth as pertaining to ultimate reality. So it's not just about like faithfulness and fidelity. For the Greeks, what is true is what is real. So in the Hebrew world, truth was evidenced through action, through being faithful, through being devoted. In the Greek world, uh, scholar L.J. Kuyper says that truth was more a concept of the mind. What is real? John actually seems to mean both things here, depending on the context of the passage you're looking at. For example, when he says of Christ that, that he's full of grace and truth, he probably means that he is fully faithful and obedient. Right? He, he is true in the sense that, man, Jesus demonstrates his obedience to the Father all throughout this gospel and, and references his obedience to the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. He is full of that kind of faithfulness and obedience. But when Jesus says that he's the true vine, he probably means that he is the real vine, there aren't other vines that you can attach yourself to. I, I'm it, Jesus says. I am the true vine. But it's Pilate's question here that's so significant. What is truth? As, as a Roman who's not coming from a Hebrew background, am I a Jew? No. What he probably means is, what is reality? What is real here, Jesus what Pilate doesn't realize, though, is that in that very moment, he is looking directly into the face of reality. 
In the short time uh, I have remaining, I want to give us four thoughts concerning truth from John's gospel that have shaped Christianity from the very beginning and that should shape our lives now, no matter what's happening in the world around us. Number one, Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is reality. And Jesus is perfect faithfulness and fidelity. Because Jesus is God, and because, as John says in chapter 1, in him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made, he doesn't just create reality. He doesn't just tell us about reality. He is reality. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This goes back to the Old Testament, to what's called the Shema, which begins, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, meaning there are no other gods. There is only one God. Like, you can create gods out of wood or out of gold, or you can make other things your idol. You can bow down before those things, either literally or proverbially, but you aren't doing anything that is rooted in reality. You're doing something that's rooted in a lie. Why? Because our God is one. There is only one God. There aren't gods. There is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when you worship anything other than him, you are effectively saying through your actions, not that you just prefer other gods, but you're saying that the real God isn't actually real. So we're not just saying, when we say that Jesus is truth, we're not just saying that Jesus is truthful or that he doesn't lie or that we think his words are truthful. We're saying that all reality hinges on Christ because without him there is literally nothing. And it's important that that's where John began this entire gospel. He introduces Jesus by saying, he is not just the Messiah. He's not just the fulfillment of hundreds of years of Hebrew prophecy. He is the incarnate logos of God. He is the incarnate word of God. So if you just think a, a, a human king like King David, like a new king is coming to save us from the Romans or to save us from oppression and to set up a new earthly kingdom that's going to be the greatest ever, if you think that's what he is, you've missed it. He is so much bigger and greater and higher and more powerful and more transcendent than that. He is the word of God. He is everything. 
So he is truth. Secondly, Jesus reveals truth. This is what he said to Pilate. For this purpose, I I was born. For this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And I believe here that in the context of John, at least, Jesus is not talking about like truth in general, but I think he's specifically talking about the truth of himself. The truth of himself. This whole conversation with Pilate concerns Jesus's identity. Who are you? Are you a king? What have you done? And John has clearly made the case that Jesus's ministry was largely about bearing witness to his own identity. If you remember, he did this through what John called signs. That was kind of the first half of John's gospel, where all of these signs or miracles that Jesus had done that testified to who he was. It testified to his power. In chapter 2 of John, Jesus did his first sign. It was at the wedding at Cana. He turned water into wine. And after that took place, at the end of that chapter, it said this uh, is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And it says, John says, he manifested his his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So in his signs, in in the miraculous things that he did, Jesus is manifesting his glory, meaning he is giving people a glimpse of who he really is. And when he manifests his glory, those around him either believe or they don't believe. And this piece of believing has come up over and over again, hasn't it? Like, John's talked about it so much. John 3, 16, whoever believes will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Whoever believes what? What is it? It's the reality of Jesus's identity, right? That the word has become flesh, that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is king of the Jews. Jesus has spent this whole gospel revealing the truth of himself. And guys, that's what the whole story of scripture is. It's God's revelation of himself to humanity and his grand plan of restoration through Christ. That's what the Bible is. Number three, Jesus sends the spirit of truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus reveals truth. Jesus sends the spirit of truth. We saw this recently in John 16. The spirit is the Holy Spirit, who is also God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. And here's what he says about him. This is in chapter 16, starting in verse 8. Jesus says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And then Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So Jesus has revealed himself, but the spirit is the helper who will live in the lives of believers, literally live within the lives of believers and continually reorient them to the truth of Christ. And he does this by convicting of sin, 
by convicting of a lack of righteousness on our parts, but also revealing the truth of Christ's righteousness to us, and also the, the nature of judgment, that because Jesus has died and resurrected, ultimately the ruler of this world, who is the devil, the enemy, has been judged. Right? The, the, the whole thing is sealed. Jesus has done it. It is finished, as Jesus says. Right? And the Spirit communicates that truth into our lives and into our hearts. In other words, the Spirit reminds you of who Christ is. The Spirit also reminds you of who you are, who I am. Someone who is not God. No matter how hard I try to be God in my life, no matter how much I pursue omniscience, no matter how much I try to be all things to all people, I am not God, and I'm actually desperately in need of God. I'm desperately in need of His grace, because it is really easy to like know the truth, to know the gospel or espouse the gospel of Jesus, but not actually walk in it, not actually live in it. And that's our fourth point. Jesus calls us to walk in truth. And we do this by believing. And it's why there's such an emphasis, I think, on believing in John. The words belief and faith, uh, while perhaps having slightly different meanings, are at times used interchangeably by Scripture. John seems to favor the word belief. Paul maybe favors the word faith. But at times they are talking about the exact same thing, which is like this internal state of acceptance of Christ's identity that leads to transformation and action. That's why Jesus paired belief with repentance. That's a big part of his primary message in Matthew's gospel. Repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe. These two things are like deeply intertwined. Why should I repent of my sin? Like, why should I change my mind? Why should I live differently? And it's because I have become convicted by the spirit of truth that Christ is reality. And the beauty is that Jesus hasn't left us to figure out all that stuff on our own, has he? He's given us this spirit of truth to continually lead our wandering hearts back to him. But we live in a world where everything pushes against the truth. We live in a world where the truth that we're talking about this morning, Scripture says, is foolishness. It's folly. That's why scripture repeatedly tells us things like, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Or friendship with the world is enmity towards God. Or don't put your hope in the things of this world, right? Like where moth and rust destroy. Friends, this is why Christianity and the Christ life is by its very nature countercultural. It is not shaped by any human philosophies of reality. It is shaped by the author and sustainer of reality, the true and only one, Jesus Christ. What is truth? Jesus is truth. And the whole of our lives should bow in submission to that reality. 
May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let me pray for us. Father, as we consider this morning the nature of truth, um, help us to seek to understand that not in the terms of this world, first and foremost, but on your terms. God, help us as we seek to increasingly make Jesus the center of our very existence, to live lives that revolve around him and his life-altering sacrifice. And not just because he is Messiah, not just because he is Savior, but because he is God. Father, we thank you that in your great love, you did not leave us in our sin and in our pursuit of other gods, in making ourselves gods, but you sent your Son so that we might be awakened to truth, to reality itself. And even though we, we live in a time where we see it, as Paul says, through a glass dimly, we rest on the hope that one day we will see it fully. And that hope is also Jesus, that because of him, a way has been made for us to be reconciled to you forever and justified before you, despite our complete undeservedness. Father, we give you thanks. We praise you for the truth of your scripture today. And it is in your name. Amen. Please stand with us.